Hello, friends. Welcome back to Off the Bunga Bunga, or Bunga Cast for short. Uh, it's the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Thursday, the 21st of January. I'm just stating that in case you think that uh, we're ignoring something, in case something crazy happens between now and when you hear this. Uh, but actually, maybe that sense of impending doom, of a massive cataclysm on the way, is maybe part of the problem. Uh, maybe our fantasies, instead of driving us to political action, are complicit with our passivity. Anyway, that's just a that's just a start or something to think about. But it will be something that we'll return to over the course of this episode because we'll be talking about politics, subjectivity, and fantasy. Um, so speaking about fantasy, I'm going to introduce uh, George and Phil, uh, the objects very much of your fantasy listener, no doubt. Uh, guys, what what is your fantasy? George, you go first. So. Oh no! So as a good as a good uh, viewer of the UK version of The Office, I was going to say uh, probably just two sisters me watching, but for <laughs> listeners who don't get that just... reference, <laughs> for listeners who don't get that, that reference, no, my my fancy at the moment is just going to the pub and having a pint of beer and having a conversation with people. It seems this completely ridiculous alien. Yeah thing that's completely outside of all of our grasps um so well, yeah we were, that's probably we just, my my fantasy at now we were just saying before recording we were like recollecting about a kind of slightly annoying pub experience or experience with a certain someone that uh we know and and uh, have been annoyed by in the past and i thought well that just sounds fantastic that sounds like the best I would, thing I imagine right now <laughs> i would risk being pushed into oncoming traffic just to go to the, go to the pub <laughs> phil yeah, my fantasies used to be much more depraved, but then um, beginning with lockdown, they seem to have um, become much more uh, gentil. Domesticated, and, um, yeah. Domesticated and reduced to, um, yeah, it would be quite nice to like, you know, see somebody in uh, outside of a supermarket and outside, well, not even at home. Just, you mean just outside, nice you want to hang out outside a supermarket just waiting for <laughs> <laughs> yeah doing some skating drinking some energy drinks maybe smoking a couple of cigarettes in the in the parking lot that's not my fantasy but uh yeah definitely my fantasies have become more uh, modest and domesticated um since we've entered into um well since the beginning of lockdown in fact so yeah right so um beyond our, our mundane fantasies um, i'm going to bring in our guest uh, benjamin fong who teaches at arizona state university and is the editor of damage magazine which uh, both george and i have written for it's fantastic we're going to hear a bit more about it as we go along so i'd like to say firstly hi to to ben welcome and you're well and, and you and, and feel free to answer the fantasy question or, or uh, swerve it. yeah i was gonna say we should hear what an american fantasy is like as well <laughs> Yeah. Um, hey, thanks so much for uh, having me on the podcast. Uh, we're a big fan of Alfred Bunga Bunga at, at Damage Magazine. Um, my fantasies have always been extremely pedestrian. And yeah, they've only grown more so during lockdown. Uh, having a beer uh, with other people, it sounds pretty good right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, well, we're kind of doing that virtually. Um, so, you know, there's there's that um, there's there's Zoom. Um, maybe we'll also talk a little bit about technology towards the end of this as well. Um, and whether whether it's a good thing or a bad thing uh, <laughs> and maybe with a bit more sophistication uh, than that. Ben's just the jury is still down. out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Very much out. OK, um, let's actually get properly started. Um, Biden was inaugurated yesterday and maybe that's a good place to start. Um, I've characterized it, I don't think I'm the only one, as uh, liberal authoritarianism with woke characteristics. So maybe that's where we should start. Do you think that's a, an appropriate characterization of what the Biden regime will be, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically right. And I, I listened to your all's uh, episode with Daniel Bessner and Amber Frost, and I, I agree with uh, everything there. Um, you know, a return to the neoliberal center, but with woke characteristics. Um, that does seem, you know, more or less what we're headed for. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, um, I mean, there's certainly cause for uh, pessimism right now. Um, I don't necessarily think it totally has to do with the center, however. Um, and that's because I don't just think it's like a, a restoration, just like a return to the Obama years. It is ideologically, but practically it's not. I mean, Biden just announced a $1.9 trillion stimulus that's not modeled on the old type, uh, types of um, stimulus. Like it involves a lot of needed uh, social spending. It's not just a corporate bailout. 
Uh, it includes $130 billion for school reopenings. And, um, you know, that's all good stuff. It's going to be infrastructure improvements, a lot of local jobs. Uh, we're certainly not going to see anything uh, resembling Medicare for all or any of like the Bernie proposals. That stuff is all, you know, off the table. Um, but I think it's reasonable to, to expect uh, things like some green infrastructural spending that could be, you know, an opportunity uh, for the left. And um, I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I, I don't think this is evidence of any like ideological shift within the Democratic Party. I'm not saying that. I think it, again, is a return ideologically to the Obama years, but um, things are different now. Um, and I think that, uh, well, one, you know, there's enough like Democratic Party people who can see the economic fallout on the horizon and they don't want to be stuck with it politically. Um, so I think that, you know, there's going to be some spending to avoid some of that. And then second, and probably more importantly, their preferred base, uh, the PMC, the, the professional managerial class, um, they are sick of the pandemic and they want their kids to go back to school, you know? So a stimulus that prioritizes, um, you know, uh, vaccine distribution and reopening schools, it's like playing to the preferred base. Um, so the party's the same, but the historical juncture is different. And uh, so I think that that offers some possibility, I guess. Um, but guess, if there is reason for, yeah, please. Well, just to say, I suppose, I mean, I think it does indicate that there's more willingness to spend generally. Um, and that's true of governments of, you know, all sorts of different kind of um, political complexions across the Western world at the moment, um, that um, there's been that recalibration more towards a willingness to spend publicly, particularly if it's of the kind of spending that you mentioned. Um, so, and I, th and I think you're right. I mean, it's welcome in as much as it does help things to um, people to get back into work as much as possible and to restore social life. Um, all of those things would be good as well as the infrastructural spending. Yeah. I mean, just on that coronavirus point, I've, I've heard or seen, I can't remember who tweeted it. I should, should have written it down so I can acknowledge my sources, but it seemed to ring true to me. This idea that essentially right now you've got Biden, he's he's competent he has expertise it's it's like there's now permission to quote unquote solve covid it's okay you know things can get back to normal like things could never possibly have got back to normal under a trump second presidency that would that would never have have happened and even while he was still in office it was impossible to uh, to do all the things which everybody knows needed to be done um but now the pmc can exhale after a after a difficult and challenging period and um get ready to getting back to normal so now we have permission to get back to normal yeah essentially i mean i think one one additional thing that's particular to the american context which has to do with the screwed up way in which um the american state spends money is that um this isn't going to be uh spent through federal programs it's all going to be devolved to states which is uh, in general a sort of regressive feature of the American political system. But uh, practically, you know, if like four or $5 billion is going to every state for school reopenings, that is a practical opportunity for the left to work at a state level to make sure those funds go towards, you know, the right projects with project labor agreements, um, stuff like that. So I think there, there, are, um, there are opportunities certainly. Um, but I mean, like I was saying, like, I, you know, I, I don't think it's um, that's necessarily cause for much optimism, uh, again, not because of, of Biden and like what the centrists are doing, but because the because the left has been like really well disciplined in this whole process. And I think that's the real um, cause for uh, um, pessimism right now. I mean, you know, the the window um, between two, between Bernie's two primary runs it was really the time when we should have been building something organizationally. And it's great that an organization like DSA has grown uh, in the meantime, but it's done so very indirectly. And there's been no real organizational gains that have come directly from the Sanders campaign. And that's a real, that's a real failure. I mean, our revolution tried it the first time around uh, and failed. And I don't even think we're gonna see some attempt to use Bernie 2020 data and infrastructure towards building something. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen, which is kind of depressing. It's, it's an interesting point. I mean, we've had, you know, we've spoken, well, we touched upon it a bit before, 
Um, but what makes you, I mean, what would you attribute that failure to? How much was it baked in from the start and how much is Bernie personally to blame for that? Um, I'm one of those people who doesn't blame Bernie for anything. Uh, you know, I saw that <laughs> cute image of him from, uh, from the inauguration. I was like, that's my guy. Um, I, I do think it's a lot of, um, I think it's, I mean, I think it's largely a reflection of a lack of, uh, left organization in the States. So I think it's ultimately that, that, um, the people you, who that's just were, circular, isn't it? Well, I think that the people who were hired by the Sanders campaign, were generally, um, you know, quote unquote, like progressive Democratic Party people who weren't really interested in the project of the left. And so um, that the campaign was um, was uh, ideologically like very like liberal left fusionist and that it uh, didn't really result in any sort of concrete organizational gains at the end. I think those are just both, um, you know, the products of a campaign that was largely uh, you know, Democratic Party electoral people. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the that's the thing for all the talk that there's been on the left of you know whether or not to use the Democratic Party opportunistically to run on its ballot, uh, to use the opportunity of a popular candidate like Bernie and to, and to rally behind that. It that insertion is always not so much opportunistic, but it's top down, and therefore it seems to end up always conforming to. Uh, the interests and priorities of, of those at the top. I mean, effectively, the, the Democratic Party has a more powerful pull um, in, in society and in politics, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are enough people in uh, the states on the left who are interested in building um, an independent power center outside of the Democratic Party. And there, there are really optimistic signs in some places like New York City DSA is very impressive in what it's done at like a local level with like the state assembly. Um, but it's certainly not happening on a national scale. And, uh, you know, as far as uh, the progressive wins go in Congress, um, those haven't been victories of like independent power centers with like memberships. They've been victories of alternative funding streams through like the Justice Democrats and whatnot. And that's you know, better than the alternative, which is just the DNC holds the purse strings for everything. Um, but it does indicate some, you know, limitations about the progressive electoral strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, I mean, observing this from afar, how much of this stuff seemed to have disappeared almost in a puff of smoke in the course of a year. Like everybody was talking about not just about a political possibility in electoral terms, but a whole perspective on society, which seemed to be an indeed of history that, you know, you were charting out a line like, okay, now uh, things start to get good again, <laughs> or that there's some possibility of a, of a vision where politics comes to matter again. And that seems to have dissipated remarkably quickly. Um, and maybe think, well, maybe it was flimsier than we thought to begin with. I, I don't What's your interpretation? I mean, it was certainly flimsier than we thought. There's no question about that. Um, but I, I mean, I think it was always that way as well. I think any, anyone who was, um, you know, historically minded, like looked at the Sanders campaign and said, yes, absolutely, 100%. But also that like no one in his position, I mean, it's a real historical anomaly, like no one in his position, um, you know, with such political stature um, should be a prominent national candidate without some kind of like left organization to back him. So it was completely top heavy, you know, it was Bernie at the top and very little in the middle. And now that Bernie's um, on his way out, you know, we've, we're, we're back in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, we've got to have these sort of like local uh, build up at the local level and um, try to find some way forward with the national organization. But um, I, I just don't see it happening right now. Uh, and again, I think that's the real cause for pessimism at the current political juncture. Yeah, I mean, I guess it'll be interesting to see what the lay of the land is, um, you know, once the Biden administration gets under full swing, just because of the craziness of the Trump period. I mean, not even the craziness in, in kind of political or policy terms even, but just, I guess, the whole American mind space and, and media and everything just completely dominated by, by Trump, basically, in one way or another. Um, but, yeah, but I, he's I been guess, he's been he's been toppled now. Don't forget, yeah, you know, we toppled a dictator. Well, we didn't, but those who voted uh, did, um, and that's that's a that's a ray of light, surely at least. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's the thing. Does, it's like we can uh, all go back to normal now. But, but that's the question. So where are the Trumpets going to go next? Yeah, actually, I mean, maybe it's more interesting to talk about the right uh, than it is to talk about the left right now. Um, so that's maybe where we should go, because there's actually some interesting and weird uh, and potentially scary, uh, scary things happening. So, yeah, Ben, I mean, what do you think is, um, first of all, I mean, just on a, on a basic level, do you buy this idea that there is a kind of a core of Trumpism, which will cleave off, if not organizationally or institutionally, at least, um, you know, kind of mentally and in, and in its voting habits from the Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I think more the latter than the former. Organizationally, I think they've proven that they're, that it's not much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I sort of think of uh, the fate of like uh, the Trumpist tendency as, you know, not to go back to the left, but very similar to the left within the Democratic Party. Um, there's there's a really good exchange in the New Left Review's sidecar between Mike Davis and I think it was Thomas Meany, um, yeah. just about the, the, the future of the Republican Party. And um, I guess I'm more, I, I feel more drawn to the latter perspective, which is that I don't think the Republican Party is going to be rent by this. I think that um, especially after the Capitol break-in, they have all the reason in the world to um, marginalize the Trumpists. And certainly, you know, there's going to be a core of true believers, um, especially like given that this is large, not largely, but um uh, you know, fueled by uh, online forums, um, that there's still going to be plenty of people attached to that perspective. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that enough Trumpers will return to the fold, will return to the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, another sad thing of the present moment is I think that, in fact, both parties will be stronger for all this. Um, I mean, they both had to fend off challenges within their ranks, and I think they're going to be much stronger for it. Yeah, uh, that sounds really plausible. I One of the things that has been probably maybe not discussed enough really uh, is QAnon and the kind of conspiracy weird theory, I get myself all twisted up, conspiracy theory wing of Trumpism. Um, something that I, I don't think that it's not been discussed at all because obviously it has, but it's either been maybe brushed under the carpet as kind of, maybe not brushed under the carpet, marginalized or, or, or compartmentalized as just a bunch of crazies um, who should be stamped out, um, or um, yeah, or, or 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 something which is um, confluent with the far right and therefore is fascist. Uh, but no one's really treating it, not enough, as symptomatic of some broader crisis. Um, so I, I'm interested what you hear, what you think about that, Ben. Um, I've got some my interpretation, but I, I want to hear from you, as, especially since you live in the U.S. So. No, I think that that's right. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a symptom, not a cause. It's a symptom of sort of broader social malaise. Um, and I don't know. I mean, this I, I don't necessarily also think it's like a conspiracy theory wing of Trumpism. Like I think conspiracy theory. And just general ideological confusion in, in America is like much more prominent than that. Um, I, I mean, the United States is just a very strange place right now, ideologically, like people believe like all manner of like really strange things. And this is, I mean, this is super anecdotal, but I live in uh, Arizona. I've been here for like four or five years. And, um, you know, I've encountered uh, conflicting perspectives that I didn't think could like, um, coexist you know i know people who absolutely hate trump but are also 100 percent convinced that the pandemic is a hoax i mean i know like hippie pro-trumpers who will like accost me to talk for like 15 minutes about the healing properties of crystal salt lamps you know i mean just like a really really strange it's a strange place right now it's a strange place in terms of like political ideology and so um you know, people believe all, all manner of like conspiratorial things on both the left and the right. Um, and, you know, a lot of like apolitical people as well who are primarily into the conspiracy theories and for uh, neither Trump or the alternative. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I guess I have like just, you know, like you said at the beginning, a standard materialist view here. I mean, it's a symptom of broader um, social decay and economic insecurity. Um, I mean, it's also, I mean, to, to make it specific to America, it's also just a result of the fact that um, Americans are, are constantly gaslit by political authorities. 
um, you know, going, going back decades, um, we're just constantly told one thing and shown another. And so it's like pretty unsurprising that a lot of people in America would take on uh, a paranoid worldview. Um, it just makes yeah. sense given the that, nature of political authority a, and the media. Yeah. Do you think that's exceptionally um, worse in America, in the US, compared to other Western states? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're like very like, uh, I mean, I, I guess I should say I don't know uh, for certain, but just given um, the audacity of some of the things that happen in America, it's just baffling. Like, even with the vaccine rollout, like very simple things, like I have like, I was arguing with a liberal friend about this the other day and, um, you know, I was saying, well, Fauci, Anthony Fauci came out and he said, okay, no one, no one go out and buy a mask. Masks are overrated. Right. And then two months later, he says, uh, actually everyone get a mask. We need a mask real quick. Right. And I said like, what are people supposed to do in that kind of situation? Of course, they're going to be confused by it. And he said, um, well, they should have known that the only reason Fauci said that was because there was a mask shortage. They should have internalized that lie. And then when he says <laughs> that it's Christ. okay to buy masks, then everyone should have known that, you know, that's because that we had plenty of masks now. I'm like, like what, like just talk to people like they're adults, you know, like if you, yeah. if you do this kind of thing, then you're kind of relying upon this like liberal, rational paranoia that yeah. you, all co yeah. you constantly have to like uh, see the world through. Um, but for most people, like it makes sense that they're, they're paranoid given that kind of rhetoric. I mean, it seems to me like you've got, it's, uh, let's put it this way. I mean, generally middle class and generally liberals, but I mean, people who have more identification with the establishment and the two main parties, um, but particularly the Democrats, I suppose, maybe believe too much. They're too close to the media. They believe in what the media says much more than the general population. And then you've got a swathe of the population who just believes too little. Uh, who are not willing to buy into any mainstream narrative. And I was looking at some data on this earlier. Um, I'll actually include the link in the show notes. That shows that one, that, that the whole Q phenomenon is much more confused. I mean, it's not a discrete body of believers. There are people who are uh, sympathetic to those views, but who don't identify with Q or vice versa, who identify with Q uh, and think they're a Q person, but actually disagree with a lot of the ideas. So there's no real coherence even internally to it. Um, to me, what that all looks like is a sort of ungluing of American society and an intensification of anti-politics that was there before. That's something that we've seen around the world, which in its anti-political and, and I suppose in its more specifically political formulation is a disbelief and mistrust in political institutions, in politicians specifically, but maybe in representative institutions as a whole, you know, the slogan, they do not represent us, which was um, probably made first in, in, or famously in Argentina in 2001 at the time of the IMF debt crisis, um, rightly so targeting the whole political establishment. And that's something that's been generalized across the world now, right? They do not represent us. But what really strikes me about QAnon, um, to the extent that we can call it a call it that, and to the extent that it's any in any way a discrete grouping, um, but at least that tendency is that it's a, this radical disbelief or distrust that is not just political, um, a, a political kind of withdrawal of, of, of investment, but an epistemological one even that that there's just no common ground on which to assert that we believe these same things are true, and that seems to me really stark. I wonder. I wonder if you if you see it as stark as I do, or at least that's my impression. I do. I mean, and in those terms, I think it's uh, really it's really dangerous uh, to have no kind of like common fabric that's holding together American society, um, insofar as it pertains to uh, political beliefs. And I, I would agree with you that um, you know that the problem is essentially about the dominance of uh, media institutions over communal institutions in American society, that people are either too trusting or too disbelieving of uh, what they hear in the media. And part of the problem there is that they lack associational ties that used to, um, that used to ground uh, American civil society, right? Like unions have been gutted, membership organizations have been gutted. And so people just don't see other people with different beliefs from them outside of, you know, um, seeing other parents when they pick up their kids from school or whatever. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, the atomization is dangerous. Uh, and, um, 
you know, a, a very much an effect of uh, the culture industry in America. Uh, just, I, I mean, again, anecdotally, I'd, I'd like to believe that there's still some commonality beneath all that, however, and that the, um, the sort of uh, rending of the American social fabric is a little bit overblown. I mean, I, I have like QAnon people in my uh, immediate family, you know, and uh, you know, people who like post, um, you know, pictures of their like camo, like semi-automatic weapons on Facebook and whatnot. Uh, and like, we still have fine conversations, you know? And I think that anyone mm -hmm. who has, who, you know, is close with their uh, immediate and extended family and, you know, actually like, uh, you know, goes to you know, Thanksgiving dinners and whatnot and hangs out with them. I think that there's still some commonality there and that the divisiveness is kind of a media creation overblown and that underneath it all, there's still something holding, holding America together. Thanksgiving family table, the family? It's not that bad. It's always complained about, but it's not that bad. <laughs> no, I believe you. I just it felt like you made your, but you're, I mean, it sounds like you're making a pitch, right? I mean, uh, you're saying, um, you know, it's the family. Uh, it's not just the family, but yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think that you should, uh, you know, uh, dis disavow your uh, Republican uncle. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I mean, I also, I also, my impression is that the partisanship is overstated um, and the, the, maybe the culture war partisanship, because really partisanship is uh, more, in my opinion, more of a culture war than an actual political or ideological struggle. Um, but that partisanship is overstated. I think that's for uh, those who really bought in to the whole thing, right? That's, that's for the, but for the, for the, for maybe 60% of the population, that isn't the case. But there does seem to be a kind of a breakdown, again, maybe not as severe uh, as I initially stated, you know, if, if, if what Ben says is right, I think, um, maybe not as profound, um, but that it's still a kind of um, a, some sense of disintegration, a disintegration of American uh, society uh, in a way that, I mean, if we compare to the, to the kind of left criticism of that was made in the 1950s or the 1960s of this repressive completely conformist society, you're kind of a, you're a very long way away from that. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I mean, on the flip side, um, you know, since, since 2016, essentially, I do feel like um, the willingness to dismiss uh, deplorables on the other side has like grown immensely. And that's a pretty dangerous tendency to sort of dismiss other human beings is like not worth your time or as, um, you know, totally wrong uh, in such a way that they should be punished. Um, I think that that's a, that's a, you know, genuinely dangerous tendency. Yeah. Um, so I, maybe we should uh, move on. Cause I think we'll, we might come back to touch on some of these topics when we talk a little bit more about psychoanalysis specifically. Um, but we should, I'd like to hear from, from Ben actually, uh, what is Damage? Uh, what is Damage magazine? A magazine that uh, the three of us like very much, um, that you know we've written for, and uh, and, and we intend to continue doing so. But I, I it's obviously got a, di a pretty distinct proposal. So it'd be interesting to know what the kind of project is there. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I think the simplest way to describe Damage is um, as a magazine about ideology and social psychology. Um, I mean, broadly, like about the kinds of uh, pathology in thinking and political action that are, um, you know, spawned under unequal, alienating um, social conditions. And um, uh, just practically, it emerged out of a group called the Society for Psychoanalytic Inquiry. Uh, we had been, you know, I mean, we've been meeting and, you know, reading and researching together for, for many years. I think the group was founded in 2013. And, um, you know, we will get together all the time and have reading groups and um, discuss things and send very, very long emails back and forth to one another. And finally, um, you know, we got to feeling like those long emails should be turned into something more productive uh, rather than just sitting in our Gmail inboxes. And uh, that's really where damage came from, a desire to sort of turn some of that into, um, into a sort of productive forum. And, uh, you know, the group is broadly interested in uh, the interconnections of Marxism and critical theory and, and psychoanalysis. And that's where the magazine started. But, um, 
as you all know, it's taken a lot of different directions. Uh, I don't want to give the audience the impression that it's only a psychoanalytic magazine uh, because it's not, and we don't think of it that way, um, even though it's certainly influenced by the psychoanalytic perspective. So actually, I had a question about the, I guess, the the, the tagline um, of the magazine, which I think is um, really interesting and important, uncovering damage to subjectivity. What 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 are the major sorts of damage that have been done to subjectivity, presumably to all of our subjectivities. Um, and is this is this what the, you know, I guess the content of some of the articles is looking to explore? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are like diverse ways in which um, capitalist society drives us crazy. Uh, in some ways, like very explicit, but in other ways, I think the damage goes deeper than that. And I think that psychoanalysis as, uh, you know, one of the um, sort of materialist uh, psychologies can be, can be helpful in making sense of the diverse ways in which, uh, you know, people become depressed and anxious and, you know, hate themselves and hate one another. Um, yeah, I don't think it's like um, any particular direction uh, that we take it in, but we just take psychoanalysis to be um, useful in sort of understanding the ways in which uh, capitalist society is not simply uh, objectively immiserating and destructive, but uh, more specifically, uh, subjectively damaging, um, that people, um, you know, think in um, pathological ways, ways in which, uh, you know, they reinforce the conditions of their own domination and subjectification. And, um, and, you know, I mean, as this applies to politics, like, uh, you know, ways in which, uh, you know, we're, we're clearly just not going to move forward, uh, given sort of existing, like certain existing political conceptions, uh, and trying to uncover those pathologies as well. And, um, you know, I mean, none of this is meant to be, I think that, that part of the worry with analytic social psychology more generally, is that it's sort of taken on, um, you know, from, well, from an analytic perspective, uh, from a sort of removed distance perspective. And that's not at all what we mean it, uh, what we intend the magazine to be about. It's sort of like working through unstrategic ways in which um, like leftists shoot themselves in the foot sometimes. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of, uh, a lot of content there because there are a lot of different ways leftists uh, shoot themselves in the foot. Sorry, Alex, I think you were going to say more substantive. No, actually, I, I think that might be a good thing to talk about right here. I was going to ask something else, but, you know, often criticism, critique of the left is understood by other leftists as damaging as aggressive, basically, um, or maybe even as narcissistic. Um, so maybe it might be worth saying why critique is necessary, why critique of the left is necessary. That sounds like a big point. Maybe some listeners will be like, well, duh, obviously. Um, and others might be going like, yeah, actually, why do you, why do you guys, because I mean, we do it ourselves at, at, on BungaCast, um, seem to beat up on the left. I mean, I would disagree with that uh, characterization, but maybe lots of people do see it that way. So it might be worth to discuss that. Why is it important to critique the left? Um, sure. Uh, I mean, I guess one thing is just that um, the uh, the left, the contemporary left, is um, uh, historically siloed. Let's say I think that um, uh, you know most people coming to the left uh, sort of you know fall into to left circles and um, don't have uh, a ton of appreciation for the history of past left struggles. And I think that that's changing. I think, you know, outlets like uh, Jacobin, for instance, are doing a really good job of um, situating uh, the current leftist project in a broader historical narrative. Um, but I think part of the problem there is that, um, you know, we're, we're, coming, we're coming out of a kind of coma. I mean, the left has been dead since the seventies and we're waking up and all of a sudden um, you know, people are confused as to why it's not working right away. And, um, you know, again, the fact that like unions have been gutted, um, associational capacity has been gutted in America, NGOs have like increased in number and size and funding. Uh, all of these things like mean that uh, left politics today is going to have certain pathologies. And, um, and, and, you know, that's not, uh, that, that's not a sort of abstract view. That's just a concrete historical view, just given like what we're emerging from. Um, 
I mean, I'll say this as well. I, I, I do think that there are damaging forms of critiques of the left as well. Like, I, I think that there are some critiques of the left that are made for the purpose not of um, improving the left tra trajectory, but of siphoning, you know, iconoclastic leftists towards like different murkier projects, let's say. Um, so, I, I mean, like with, with Bernie, for instance, I mean, I think that uh, we've yet to see a, uh, see a solid sort of uh, uh, post-mortem of the Bernie campaign. I'm not sure we ever will. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there were a variety of articles that came out. I, I don't think any of them got to the right kind of critique of the Bernie campaign, which was not dismissing it as like, you know, overtaken by the PMCs, but dismissing it for um, the, you know, different unstrategic reasons uh, and um, the fact that, uh, like I said at the beginning, so much of the campaign staff was taken from the sort of progressive democratic electoral realm. Um, so I do think there, there are damaging forms of critiques of the left as well, even though in general, I would say with you all that we should all just like be much more uh, willing to criticize ourselves as, uh, you know, for, for taking unstrategic actions. I mean, I just wanted to foreshadow um, a discussion that we're going to have towards the end of this podcast, which actually uh, is probably going to be bonus footage. It's not the right word. Bonus content. Uh, well, uh, I hate the word content, but, you know, <laughs> we're, we're wedded to it. There's no way there's no other way to get around it. If you have suggestions, uh, do let me know, because uh, I'd rather never use the word again. Um, but we're going to talk more about it um, on our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash BungaCast if you do want to sign up and please do sign up. Uh, if you want to hear more about it, because we're going to be talking about uh, the relevance and importance of psychoanalysis today, um, whether it's right to uh, have psychological critiques of politics um, and delve into perhaps the marriage of Marx and Freud and what happened to that marriage. Um, so that's something to come up, but just to kind of um, maybe provide a little bit of a taste and, and start that discussion before we turn to other topics first. Um, the cr critique of the left Yes, fair enough. Maybe you go along with that and say, yes, it's important to have critique. It is a way of advancing things. It's a way of, uh, you know, crystallizing really what's at stake. But I think maybe a lot of people would disagree with a psychological approach to critiquing the left because that would seem to um, personalize things. I think I'm just trying to maybe convey what the popular understanding of, of this would be, that it, um, that it personalizes matters, that it sets the the, the criticizer up as someone who knows more than, than the other, than the person who's being analyzed. Um, and so the response is always, yeah, well, what have you got, you know, or why do you, why are you not afflicted by these very same things? Yeah, sure. And we, we absolutely are. <laughs> I mean, the, the only way in which like analytic social psychology makes sense is a, a project is if you're critiquing tendencies that you yourself have. Um, if it's like critiquing, you know, the, 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 the common people out there, um, it's just not taken on in the right perspective, I think. But I mean, I'll say this, like, I, I think that if you are skeptical of uh, the psychological disciplines in general, psychiatry, psychology, you know, mental health field in general, um, you've got good intuitions. Um, and, you know, everyone at Damage is well aware that uh, psychology has historically been a tool of oppression. I mean, in some cases, it's explicitly so, as in the case of like industrial psychology. And um, even when it's, you know, genuinely, um, even when it's genuinely taken up is like, uh, you know, uh, seeking mental health for patients, um, it's more often than not about adaptation to alienating social conditions. So like in general, uh, you know, all of the psychological disciplines, including psychoanalysis, have been, have been oppressive. And I think people are right to be skeptical of, uh, of, of psychology in general uh, as a perspective. But again, I mean, um, capitalist societies mess with their minds. Um, you know, they are objectively, of course, immiserating and destructive, but subjectively, um, you know, we're constantly anxious about paying the rent, anxious about keeping our jobs. We're depressed about the condition of the world. We um, we hate our bosses. We hate, you know, other people. We hate ourselves. Uh, there's just a lot of, um, it's, it's uh, psychologically damaging, sort of as the um, title of the magazine says, uh, to be a subject of, of uh, late capitalism. And I think that um, traditional psychology might 
not offer the right language for describing that, but we need some language to describe that or we're just ignoring this, um, this uh, very, uh, very effective uh, mode of, of domination. Um, and so that's really what damage is trying to do, trying to outline and uh, provide a language for describing uh, you know, subjective damage that we all experience on an everyday basis. Sorry, Ben, just really quickly, what, what do you mean by that um, psychology or traditional psychology might not have the right language? What's the what's the kind of the issue with it or the um, the deficiencies in the ways that it might look to dis describe that experience? Sure. I mean, I, I mentioned the case of like industrial psychology, and that's like a specific branch of psychology that is about getting workers to work better. Right. So right. it's unsurprising that like that kind of discipline wouldn't provide a very helpful <laughs> language. But but even more generally, you know, um, and this this is unfortunately the fate of psychoanalysis in America in mid-century. Um, psychology is generally not I mean, the, the understanding of psychological health is not about uh, freedom and autonomy in general. It's it's usually about adaptation. Right. Like people go to mm. therapy, not because they want to be free, uh, which is the reason they should go to therapy, but because they want to you know, get rid of some defective parts of their personality rather than explore the reason that it's there in the first place. And I think that um, the traditional languages of psychology offer us reasons or offer us ways to uh, get rid of the defective parts of ourselves um, rather than uh, trying to investigate their causes. To manage our behaviors, to to fit in or to achieve instrumental goals rather than seek freedom. Uh, nice, nice way to put it, I think. So I think we're going to put a pin in this and we're going to come back to it again. That'll be on Patreon. Uh, I just want to throw this in there and uh, not expecting responses on there, but I think it's just a, a good thing to mull over um, and maybe we'll come back to it. But there was a poll by YouGov showing that uh, what do Americans consider uh, the biggest threat to their way of life? And majorities across Democrats, independents, Republicans, and, and general population, majority says other people in America. So other, other Americans uh, are considered to be Americans' biggest threat, by far greater uh, than foreign threats, uh, natural threats, global warming, and so on, and economic forces such as money, trade, and business. Um, so I thought that was really remarkable. And I thought this would be a good moment to bring it up. Maybe we'll come back to it. I think it was Daniel Bessner that said this on the last podcast, but that's terrifying in terms of what it means for the enhancement of the security state in America. That's um, a perfect justification for, you know, domestic terror laws, uh, which is kind of terrifying. Yeah, I mean, you can just play people off against each other, really, um, which is what they have been doing and what they're doing now. We're getting the uh, Democrat version of 9-11 uh, after maybe the Republican one uh, at the original 9-11. Um, speaking of the Republicans, let's turn to this. You wrote an article uh, with uh, Justin Guastella, um, a couple, uh, maybe it came out last month, about pro-worker conservatives. Um, we should maybe explore who these people are. So maybe you could explain uh, and maybe give a list of names of who pro-worker conservatives are in the U.S. today. Uh, maybe that terminology will jar even for, for certain listeners. We did have one of the people that you actually cite uh, in the article on this podcast, the editor of American Affairs, Julius Krein. Uh, that was episode 145. If you want to check that out um, and maybe use that as... as um, more evidence or as some more content to relate to uh, in reference to, to what Ben maybe is about to explain about pro-worker pro conservatives. Sure. So, I mean, this is a, a kind of new tendency on the right. Um, you know, it's people like uh, Julius Krein and Michael Lind of American Affairs, um, uh, Sagar and Jetty of the show uh, Rising, uh, Orrin Cass of American Compass, um, I think they would, you know, kind of include people like Tucker Carlson in their ranks as well, although I'm, I don't think Tucker Carlson would think of uh, himself as part of this movement. Um, and I think the best way to describe them is, is like, you know, they're, they're economic nationalists, they're political corporatists and social conservatives, like those are the sort of three baskets that I think about them in. Um, on the economic front, they want, uh, you know, to address the hollowing of the American core and to reshore American jobs. Uh, on the political front, um, you know, they are corporatists. They want to bring um, business unions and, you know, state officials together to sort of hash out something. And uh, 
Um, they don't seem to actually support like actually existing unions, but they do theoretically support like labor. Um, and then socially they're, you know, pro-family and against individualism. And yeah, I mean, on the whole, they, they put on a pretty good show. I mean, they're, they're, they're not free marketeers. They're not xenophobes from what I can tell. They are not like evangelicals. Um, you know, it's sort of a confusing group for the left because we're used to really hating the right. Um, so they're, they're initially quite attractive. And I think that's why we wanted to write the article because I, I think that, um, you know, people who sort of, you know, gather these things uh, might be initially attracted to what they have to offer. Uh, but we wanted to write the article to say that you shouldn't trust it. I guess my question, Ben, then was, um, are they exploiting a genuine political space? I mean, yes and no. Like, just demographically, there are uh, absolutely conservative working class voters out there, uh, many of whom probably voted for Trump. So I, I don't doubt that there are people out there. Um, I just think that uh, it's largely... Um, well, I'll say this. I mean, I think it's largely uh, like post-2016 media creation. I mean, the, the, the media came up with this concept of like the regressive white working class. And I think that it was largely, uh, again, a media fabrication. And um, some of these, uh, you know, uh, DC think tank funded uh, elite educated people stepped up uh, to, to represent them. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes and no. And I mean, just as far as their like proposed demographic, like the socially conservative, uh, but economically nationalist voter, um, I think it's a little bit over overblown. Um, I mean, I argued this in, in, in an article about um, the problem of cultural liberalism on the left. Uh, but if you, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I think that these commentators often like, uh, uh, confuse, you know, the typical like woke bullshit, which everyone universally hates uh, for social liberalism. And these things aren't the same thing. So, um, you know, uh, people's views in America on, uh, on gay marriage, on reproductive rights, um, people are socially liberal on those things. Those are majoritarian positions. And this idea that, you know, the working classes out there, like believing like illiberal, um, you know, regressive things, it's just not true. I mean, um, you know, on certain things like immigration and guns, maybe, uh, but on the whole, I would say that, um, you know, they are quite socially liberal. It's like a real victory of liberalism. Yeah. But what they hate and what a lot of people, hate, I mean, what, what a lot of people hate is um, like liberal PC culture. And those two things aren't the same thing. Like you can be uh, pro-choice, pro-gay marriage, et cetera, and also just like not want, you know, your language policed and to hear like the moralizing of progressives. And I think it's important to point that out that like they confuse these two things. So like, yes, a lot of people hate the woke stuff, but, um, you know, on the whole, the electorate's quite socially liberal. Yeah, I think that's crucial, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. Well made. Um, in your, I guess, in your sort of diagnosis, do you think that the the problems that they face are going to come in the cultural or the economic uh, domain? Basically, do you think that the, the issue is that, as you said, that they cast workers as socially conservative when in fact they aren't for the reasons you just said? Or will they run into problems basically by not being able to genuinely respond to the material demands that they do articulate and they do recognize that they might be too costly for the rest of their base in intended coalitions or, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, on the culture part, like, like I said, I think that they overestimate the degree to which like the working class in America is socially conservative. Uh, they, they might be right about like a few issues, but on the whole, like, I just don't think that the portrayal uh, makes sense. It just isn't supported in the polls. Um, but on the economic front, um, yeah, I mean, I think that every example we have of right-wing populism should lead people to believe that they're just not going to deliver. They're just not going to deliver. Um, you know, uh, Trump is, is uh, the perfect example, but it's happened around the world, like Modi, Orban, um, you know, they promise or they run on, uh, you know, some pro working class uh, demands and then they get to office and they cut taxes. That's just what they do. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe part of it is that they are two faced. I think that's certainly like part of it. But um, the thing that we wanted to get to in the article, and I think is like the key point there is that um, this 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 has structural causes. Like it's not just that. Um, they, uh, they're two-faced about it. 
um, they think of themselves as like the intellectual vanguard of a socially conservative working class movement, when in fact they're more accurately described as like a political excrescence of social decay. Um, there's a, a concept that I know you all have discussed on the podcast before, Peter Mayer's uh, void, you know, um, a lack of uh, like hollowed out party structures, like enfeebled unions, like uh, general disorgan disorganization of the working class. And um, that's what they prey on. So they're able to hive off, right-wing populists are able to hive off a certain segment of the working class, um, but they do so within this general uh, situation of political demobilization. Um, it's true, I mean, this is something we didn't get into the article. Um, it's true that in 2020, there was a, a significant uptick in voting. Um, I'm not sure totally what that means. Like it might just have just been like the mail-in ballots um, maybe it's, you know, uh, it, it forebodes something positive, uh, but, um, but uh, it's not clear that it's replicable. But in any, I mean, in any event, it's like 100 million people in America consistently weren't voting. So uh, it was a pretty bad baseline to start from. I suppose I wanted to push you a bit on this, Ben, because the, um, I mean, if we're in the process of seeing a realignment, then it doesn't seem to me necessarily that the, um, that it has been validated in terms of the incapacity of these kinds of movements and parties, you know, uh, say for the sake of argument, as is already, be, you know, I mean, there's already speculation about this, say Tucker Carlson is the Republican candidate for um, 2024, and he makes a much kind of bigger um, push for articulating this and is also able to deliver um, in a way that Trump was unwilling or unable to. I suppose so. I mean, I mean, I agree with you that there are kind of structural limits, obviously, to what this kind of political movement could ever deliver um, for um, workers in general. But it seems to me it's something it's a claim that will have to be tested, um, that people will have to learn it by experience, um, particularly given that there is so few connections between um, working class voters, um, working class citizens and the left. So whatever theoretical claims might be made about the character of these of this political movement, you know, I mean, realistically, they're going to have very little impact in wider society. Um, and so this is something that will have to be learned. Um, and at the same time, I mean, it's certainly been learned about the Democrats, I think. You know, so that has been learned about the incapacity. And as I mean, as you yourself said, right, the... Um, the failure of the Bernie campaign to really kind of um, embed itself effectively um, or even to kind of squeeze anything substantial out of the to organize or to squeeze as much as it could have out of the Democrats. So that lesson has been learned on one side and perhaps it has to be learned on the other as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right to say that they um, they are more sophisticated in how they're viewing like the current political conjuncture than maybe I've, I've portrayed them up until now. Like, they're seeing a process of realigning for is uh, the future, not just like the present of uh, American conservatism. Um, I, I guess I just don't see the same future that they do. Um, the Republican party is structurally an anti-tax party, right? I don't see how you get any kind of like economic nationalist program when the entire structure of the party is devoted to cutting taxes. That's what the Republican party does. And you might want to say, well, okay, so as, as um, you know, similar on the left, where the hope is to sort of mobilize a base that's at odds with its party's establishment in order to push it in a particular direction, you might say, okay, well, let's re rely upon the Republican base uh, to push the party in a different direction, right? That like people are realigning and we're going to take those voters and push the party in a different direction. Um, I mean, maybe the Republican Party is going to change pretty drastically, but I mean, I've just got some numbers that we quote in the article. Uh, among Republican voters, only 45% approve of unions, as opposed to 82% of Democrats, and only 28% think you should redistribute wealth with taxes on the rich, as opposed to 71% of Democrats. So, I mean, how on earth are you going to mobilize that base <laughs> to fight an anti-tax party? And, you know, I mean, again, maybe things are like changing pretty quickly, but that's a pretty bad starting point in terms well, no, of- no, sure. I mean, projections. I suppose all I mean is that, I mean, you know, I'm certainly not making the case that people that um, they should Trotskyite entryists and militants should go and try and uh, reorganize the Republican Party. Nothing like that. <laughs> 
what I'm saying is that the um, that working class voters, um, this you know, they will have to, and I think they will in due course. And I mean, certainly, I think this will be seen in Britain. They will explore those political limits themselves through that process. And I also want to put to you, I suppose, um, to kind of bend the stick in the other direction a bit. Um, if through the process of, you know, through disillusionment with um, with centre-left parties, social democratic parties, whether the Labour Party in the UK or the Democrats in the US, if you have greater working class disillusionment with those parties and a shift towards the right, um, and if that cultivates greater political independence on the part of working class voters, and if they're more willing to play the two parties off against each other to squeeze them, um, for whatever they can get in terms of, um, you know, things that can improve their living standards, as it seems to have happened with the, um, you know, the Northeast Rust Belt voters who swung from Obama to Trump um, in 2016. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be a bad thing. If um, you have a greater tranche of working class voters who have political independence of the two parties and who can um, maneuver between them. And that's one thing that is um, a boon of the Tories' victory in 2019 was the shattering of the one-party state, the Labour one-party state, in those northern constituencies that swung from the Labour Party to the Tories. So if there's greater political independence on the, work by, on the part of the workers of both mainstream parties, which will be a kind of a learned, you know, I mean, it'll be a dynamic kind of process of experimentation and perhaps bouncing between the two and learning in the along the way. That doesn't seem to me to be a bad thing. And sorry, just to throw something else in here as well, probably particularly from the British context, but I think it also applies to the American context and wider as well, is whether the left really wants the working class uh, support I think um, there was a recent article in in Damage magazine that uh, explored some of these things. Have to have to obviously plug it. Um, uh, yeah, which is basically like, well, what what if the um, this construction of the working class as socially conservative isn't just from the right? What happens if it's um, also from the left in a way? So the working class are too uh, xenophobic, racist, fascist, problematic, and all these different. Um, ways and the left tax towards a more moral minoritarian um, approach. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems like there are the conditions there potentially for pretty serious realignment in the British, in the British case, at least. Um, so yeah, just to throw that in there, what happens if, if the right are saying, come over here and the left are saying, get over there. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, just to start with Phil's uh, question, um, I think that if that were, uh, you know, how things were playing out, I think maybe differently of it. Um, but I think the general cycle is uh, that, you know, traditional center-left voters they take a gamble on the right, right? They're sick of uh, they're sick of the Democratic Party. Uh, NAFTA was just a disaster for the Democrats, and they're still suffering for it. Um, and uh, they take a gamble on the right. But the right doesn't deliver either. I think that there will be um, a good deal of disillusionment uh, after the Trump era, and um, and you know, and then they don't stay politically active. They become politically deactivated by the whole process, um, and that's again resulted in the abstention of you know forty five percent of the American population, the, the eligible voting age population in America. And so I, I don't think it's necessarily an exploration uh, that leads to sort of greater political consciousness, like the process typically results in further political demobilization. Um, and uh, I mean, George, to get to your question, like um, uh, you were obviously representing, uh, uh, talking about your, your own article and damage, which is great. And um, I, I agree with the basic thrust of it, which is that, uh, you know, the, the, the remnants of left populism now that they have been abandoned by both the neoliberals uh, on economics and, um, well, I guess blue labor in, in the UK context, I don't think there's a similar group in America really. Um, but the, mm -hmm. now that they've been abandoned, they will uh, essentially uh, take minoritarian positions. And that's like a pretty you know dangerous political trajectory, uh, not only because it, 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 it's um, you know, part of a greater uh, greater uh, situation where people are being dismissed on the other side as like deplorables, uh, 
but also because it's going to, you know, mean uh, the geographical limitation of uh, their political project to very liberal urban centers uh, around, you know, what are nationally minoritarian campaigns, uh, which is not a great situation for the left. I, I think that there, I mean, it, I, I can only speak to the American context. I think there is um, significant sort of labor-based uh, sort of group in the left uh, in, in America that is um, suspicious of and resistant to um, those tendencies, I guess. And so I, I think that there, that's certainly true of a certain segment of the, the left, particularly the PMC left maybe, uh, but I don't think it's true of the left uh, as a whole. Like, I think there's enough people who, you know, resist the culture wars and uh, are involved in the labor movement and have better politics than that. Yeah, I mean, I just want to maybe disagree slightly with Phil's uh, presentation of the dynamic in the UK, and I think it applies to the US as well. It's just that the important dynamic in terms of labor voters, uh, what happened with labor voters in the 2019 election is labor voters... Uh, especially the old industrial working class um, rather than the new maybe service sector working class is that they abandoned labor and some voted for the Tories um, and some had previously voted for UKIP, you know, for a kind of right-wing populist party and then graduated to the Tories. Um, Often that was the trajectory, but the predominant main important thing is that they stopped voting for labor and many didn't vote. Uh, And I think that tends to be People like to talk in the media about like, oh, the left is voting for the right now and that people are shifting between parties. But we're still in the fundamental, the the, the most important dynamic of today is people dropping out of politics. And that remains to be the case. And I mean, that's important. And that's also going to be brushed over. um, And it might also even open up an opportunity for being optimistic in the way that Phil talked about, about the working class asserting its political independence of no longer voting by default for labor, um, which is something that's happened across the, the Western world um, over, over three decades. But, you know, okay, maybe you want to interpret that as a, as a potentially positive dynamic, fine, but I don't, but I think it's the dropping out, which is more important than the left voting for right. Effectively. No, I mean, I take the point that both you and Ben made of, you know, the, um, the kind of the, alienation, apathy, disgust and withdrawal are significant and um, troubling dynamics. Um, And I suppose the difference in the case of Britain is that those were kind of electoral districts for parliament rather than the, you know, the um, idea of the presidential election example that I gave in the US. Um, And so I think, you know, irrespective, you know, I mean, whether people stayed home or whether they voted for the Tories in those districts, some of which had been Labour since their creation, you know, famously, you still had the case that people will um, will draw, I think people will draw lessons because the Tories are going to invest in those districts. They have to, to keep them. And they're committing to those public spending promises. And I think, I mean, they probably won't go large, you know, and it will be, you know, I'm sure it won't be as much as those um, as those constituencies need. Um, but I think, um, I suppose, you know, I give, uh, the, I think people will be switched on canny and they will realise the dynamic at play. And if they can um, become swing voters and squeeze the parties for more, to get more for, um, for their um, regions and cities and towns, um, that seems to me a potentially, you know, a potentially interesting dynamic, notwithstanding, um, I think, you know, notwithstanding the process of people dropping out, which I think will also be, um, at, you know, in play as well. Yeah, I mean, Dustin and I didn't really get to this uh, in the article because it was actually written before the um, the November election, but the 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 spike in voting was significant. I mean, it was huge, like after hovering in like the mm. 50s for a long time. Uh, it was something like 65% of the population, it was like a 10 point jump, uh, which is pretty significant. And of course, like against the, um, the constant predictions of Democrats, which is that if you expand the voting population, Democrats will win. It was pretty close. It was pretty close. I mean, in, at the end of the day, like Biden uh, won uh, pretty soundly, uh, you know, in the popular vote, at least. Um, but a lot of people turned out and not all of them were for the Democrats. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's remarkable. I, we tried to make a big deal of it when we did our post-election roundup, and it, but it's maybe worth restating. Like, I personally was disappointed that the turnout was so high, not in my heart, because I think it's a good thing that more people uh, are involved in politics, but in my head, because it would be much easier for me 
to continue on my analytical bullshit to be like, oh, people are dropping out of politics. People aren't interested in this stupid culture war between Democrats and Republicans. It would be much easier for me to spin out some fucking article saying, you know, like, let's see, people aren't interested in this stuff. No one's turning out. Turnout remains at 50% or so. Um, and to suddenly be confronted with a fact which, yeah, was heartening politically in some way, but which was intellectually, like, not what I, not what I wanted. But I think that's, it, I still haven't... It, uh, heard a good explanation for for you know exactly what motivated that it, it's interesting because it, it's counterintuitive for me at least i guess you should have written two articles one which was <laughs> if there was high turnout one which if there was low turnout just print the one that's uh, accurate straight away yeah. yeah like like on the whistle match reports like yeah write two different articles in case team a wins or team b wins that's it yeah so anyway i guess that's maybe what they meant about uh pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will or just you know being being disappointed that your analy- your analysis was wrong but uh but comforted by the fact events went away that you secretly uh deeply actually wanted them to um so actually we're going to continue talking about uh, secret uh, deep desires uh on these and last alex's bit. secret deep desires well, yeah exactly which uh, is only on patreon slash only fans um, which, uh, yeah, patreon.com slash podcast. We're going to carry on this conversation. Um, but for everyone else, we're going to leave that here. Thank you very much, Ben. Um, but we hope you'll all catch us over on uh, Patreon for the conclusion to this discussion. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.